Coming up today, Matt Burgess analyzes the crypto dreams of a $180 million ransomware gang, and Grace looks at how the war in Ukraine is affecting medical trials. You're listening to The Wired Podcast, your essential weekly guide to all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, Amit Katwala, and joining me today are Matt Burgess. Hello. And Grace Brown. Hello. This was the week when New Zealand announced it will open its borders to foreign travellers from next month after more than two years of some of the strictest coronavirus travel restrictions in the world. Australians will be able to enter the country without needing to quarantine from April 13th with vaccinated travellers from 60 countries, including the US and the UK, allowed in from May the 2nd. It was also the week when Russia blocked Instagram. The country's media regulator said the Meta-owned app was being restricted due to calls for violence against Russian soldiers being posted. And finally, this is the week when the US Senate passed a bill to make daylight savings time permanent. If Joe Biden signs it into law, then Americans will get an extra hour of sunshine at the end of summer evenings and an extra hour of darkness at the start of winter mornings. I think that's my preference. I think I'd rather have longer evenings and darker mornings. What For do you sure. guys? Yeah, you... yeah, yeah, definitely. It's just like spending that little bit more time in the evening just with daylight just makes me happier. Generally. So much happier. Yeah. yeah. The farmers will be up in arms, of course. That was always the reason that we got told why they needed yeah. daylight savings time to protect the farmers. They'll be furious. But um, what can you do? All right, let's move through to our facts. Grace, what have you got for us? So my fact is uh, close to home, if you can tell from my accent, and it's St. Patrick's Day related because we are recording this on St. Patrick's Day. Uh, My fact is that for many years, the village of Dripsy in Cork was in the Guinness Book of World Records for the shortest St. Patrick's Day parade. The parade lasted just 25 metres and it travelled between the village's two pubs. That's fascinating. We uh, discovered, we just moved out to a little village just on the edge of London and we discovered on our Boxing Day walk that there's a parade of Morris dancers that go from pub to pub no in the village that we live in. Bizarre thing to discover on a walk. We were like so confused as to what was going on until we figured it out. Matt Burgess, what's your fact this week? So I've learned about the the white stuff in Oreos, the biscuits. Are they their biscuits? Um, yeah, they're biscuits. They're biscuits. Um, apparently it is called cream. So C-R-E-M-E. Um, not cream, C-R-E-A-M, because there aren't any dairy products used in Oreo cookies. So to get around uh, regulations uh, from the FDA in the US, they call it cream with the two E's rather than the E-A one. Now, we had a discussion before the podcast, Matt, and you promised me, you promised me no more boring facts. <laughs> I thought that, I actually thought we that are. was a really interesting fact. Well, uh, I think that, that speaks to some serious issues. I, I guess this is why cream eggs are called cream eggs, right? C-R-E-M-E. Because there's nothing in there remotely yeah, approaching a dairy product. Yeah, so it has to be actual cream to be yeah. called cream. I'm not sure that I knew that the white stuff in Oreos was called cream, C-R-E-M-E. No, me neither. Aren't I'd they like Oreo that. creams on the packet or something? Uh, yeah, maybe. I just I, always I think of it as like the yeah. white goo. I think of it as stuff. Yeah. You say double stuff Oreos. It's the stuff. <laughs> double stuffed Oreos. Oh. They're, du- they're, they're stuffed with double the amount of cream, C-R-E-M-E. <laughs> All right, moving swiftly on. Our first story this week is about medical research in Ukraine. Um, the country is a big hub for clinical trials, but as you might expect, the war has thrown all of that work into turmoil with big implications as Grace has been finding out. Yeah, so you're right. Ukraine is a massive hub for clinical research. There are currently about 250 active trials with research sites in Ukraine. 
of those, about half are looking at interventions related to cancer. Others are looking at conditions like multiple sclerosis, schizophrenia, and also COVID-19. So obviously this is quite important research. Um, there's a number of reasons as to why Ukraine has become the big hub for clinical research that it is today. Um, for one of the reasons, it has a very sizable very capable capable medical and research workforce and for many years its healthcare system was underfunded which meant that for citizens participating in clinical trials just became an alternative and often speedier pathway to receiving care so that made patient recruitment really easy plus in combination with that shoddy healthcare system it meant that much of the population was made up of what are called treatment naive patients uh, which are basically individuals who haven't yet received any treatment which you know is a trial investigator's dream and then in recent years ukraine has actually overhauled its medical system and has made a lot of the health records digitized which also makes patient recruitment really really easy but then of course this russia's invasion has made sure that all of these trials are now in jeopardy it's really rare, I guess, to get this combination of treatment naive patients, but also have like really, really good digital records. So I guess Ukraine was kind of the golden area for these trials for mm-hmm. a reason. And yeah. it's really difficult researchers spend so much time and so much money on trying to ensure the perfect scientific conditions to test these drugs. Because if you get noise in the system, like maybe patients are on some form of treatment or another, rather than being on the treatment you're testing and nothing, it can be really difficult to tell if you have this noise whether a drug's actually working. So. As you say, the war's having an impact. What exactly is is going on here? Yeah, exactly. You're completely right. Consistency is king for clinical research. Researchers are constantly trying to minimize things like outliers or artifacts and optimizing the design of their trials, rule out bias, et cetera, et cetera. It's a whole field in itself, you know, looking at how to improve the design of clinical trials. So you can imagine being a researcher, trying to keep that same level of attention to detail, but your country is also being invaded at the same time, right? Um, you know, about 3 million Ukrainians have now fled the country. It means that the health records for trial participants will now be nearly impossible to track. Uh, One source I spoke to, who is a clinical trial design expert, made the point that any investigator who is trying to restart their trial will be doing so in a totally different Ukraine from where they started. The health and research infrastructure will be recovering, millions will have fled, resources might be scarce, and actually their data might have been destroyed. He said the trial runners might actually have to break it up and view it as two trials, the trial before the invasion and the trial after it. Which is not that helpful because I guess there's not much demand to know whether this drug works in the middle of a war right yeah. i mean it's like these are kind of cancer drugs and a lot of a lot of things like that where you know you might have a very very small cohort of people so even losing a small percentage of that could be really damaging to the overall kind of statistical validity of the trial and it's not just the data right these are real people many of them have got really really serious illnesses and these trial clinical trials might be the only form of treatment they're actually getting yeah exactly i mean like some of these trials are maybe looking at something small and maybe insignificant but for when you think of the patients you know this could be potentially devastating imagine you're a stage four cancer patient and participating in this trial for an experimental cancer drug is actually your last hope for survival and now you're being forced to flee your home and you're leaving your treatment behind and basically your last hope for survival do you have a sense of like what things are actually like in on the ground in ukraine for people participating in or running these trials So I spoke with the president of the Ukrainian Association for Clinical Research and basically the picture he painted was pretty much one of total havoc. You know, for one, they can't ship biosamples out of Ukraine and investigational medical products into Ukraine from the sponsors. Plus, many of the materials required for the trials are located in Kiev, which is obviously a combat zone. So they can't even get at the materials that are already in Ukraine. 
um, for trial runners um, in other parts of Ukraine, uh, such as Western or Central parts of Ukraine, they're continuing to make patient visits where they can or at least check in by phone. My source's organization is trying to relocate patients from the most vulnerable research sites to other regions of Ukraine where the research is able to continue for now. Uh, the group is also figuring out how to support people who are escaping to countries like Poland or Hungary so that they can continue their treatment and participation either remotely or at trial sites in those countries. Some pharma industry sponsors had procedures in place to cope with the possible escalation of the war. But from speaking with my source, many of them were just completely unprepared and literally had no idea what to do. I reached out to eight pharma companies who are sponsoring trials with sites in Ukraine. Most of the companies said they will try to run ongoing trials as best as they can, even if the participants have left Ukraine, and pause recruitment for new ones. Some are trying to transfer some of the work to other safer regions. But really, for some of the companies, they weren't even quite sure what was going on with their trials. One company, Servier Group, which is a French drug maker, has two oncology trials in Ukraine. And a spokesperson said that due to communication difficulties, it was difficult to obtain precise information on the progress of these studies. So we talked about the patients themselves. We talked about the specific trials, but as well as the short term effects, there's also going to be a long term effect that this disruption will have on medicine going forward. Right. A delay to a drug being approved even by a few months or a few years could have an effect on thousands or millions of patients. Yeah, exactly. Like clinical trials are a pain. You know, they take a long time. They're super complicated. Like we said, you know, a lot of work goes into designing them to be optimal. And the problem with that is that they're also the only way to get these treatments approved, you know, to actually get them on the market. So with Ukraine's trials being paused or disrupted, the ramifications for medicine could be felt for a long time. And we're already seeing the effects, you know, there is one drug, uh, sorry, one company called uh, Karuna Therapeutics, which is a biotech company based in the US. They've already had to push back the reporting, the results of their, uh, of the third phase of their trial for what is said to be a blockbuster drug for the treatment of schizophrenia, because 10 of their 19 trial sites are based in Ukraine. Uh, another instance, uh, a California biotech company called Tresida has delayed their expected day for reporting results from its phase three trial. Uh, for a drug that is treating chronic kidney disease as around 15% of the trial subjects are from Ukraine. So obviously the effects of the invasion um, on clinical trials won't just be felt by the Ukrainians, as we've already mentioned. You know, These are long-term ramifications that's going to be felt by the entire world. I think what's been really interesting, I mean, obviously the war itself is, is, is terrible. The way that it's affected things in unexpected ways has been really, really interesting to see. Like, So we did a story on the website a few weeks ago about how you know, Ukraine's like a big supplier of neon and that's affecting like the semiconductor industry. And here we've got this really unexpected effect of like this war affecting medical trials that are being run in completely different countries that you wouldn't expect. And it's not just the actual trials that are happening in Ukraine with Ukrainians. It's also having an impact on lab work in other parts of the world too because of the supply chain issues. Yeah, exactly. So in addition to being uh, a hub for clinical research, Ukraine is also home to very early stage research, the kind of work that precedes human clinical trials. In particular, there is one company based in Kiev called uh, Enemine, which is a global supplier of chemical compounds reagents for drug makers to test in creating potential treatments. At the end of February, the company announced that its services were being temporarily postponed as its employees were either escaping the country or staying to fight. That, meant, that means that the invasion is not only threatening to derail um, you know, clinical research, it's also going to derail a lot of early stage research, since so many major pharma companies are relying on this Ukrainian chemistry. 
it just goes to show that this war is having a ripple effect kind of like reaches out across the globe not just in terms of refugees but also in terms of supply chains economics like politics it's just having this huge impact obviously it's felt most keenly by people in ukraine but it's, it's going to have a trickle effect that's going to affect all of us one of the interesting things about this story and i guess a lot of the stories that you talk about and you write grace uh, and the things that we've talked about on the podcast recently are about the sort of tricky ethics involved in medicine and i think this story is also similar like this question of how you balance the safety of participants in a war zone with the need or the desire to get drugs approved and i guess on the face of it it's like well obviously you protect the people in the war zone but if you abandon a clinical trial that could you know destroy just as many lives i suppose or maybe even more if it's a, a cancer drug or something like that so how do you balance this yeah exactly i think that was what really interested me about the story in the first place there's a real kind of like sticky ethical spot that pharma companies are in at the moment and like you said like you know if a clinical trial's ultimate goal is to improve the lives of patients then their safety should be paramount endangering them in the research process would be completely antithetical to the cause so the question right now that investigators are battling with is what's more dangerous you know pulling these experimental drugs from people who might desperately need them or forcing patients to continue with trials in a country where you know today's trial sites could be tomorrow's bomb targets we know that medical facilities where trials are often carried out are under siege by russia getting to research sites in a war-torn country is treacherous for even the you know healthiest individual i mean what if that patient has stage four cancer it's somewhat comparable to what trial investigators faced and still are facing during the pandemic thousands of trials were halted or disrupted or delayed and Quite similarly, trial investigators were forced to weigh up the risks. You know, did the danger of COVID infection outweigh the benefit of the trial? And I mean, it just seems like an impossible call to make, doesn't it? And between this and this new story and COVID, it must have been a really, really turbulent time for the clinical trial industry generally. I mean, that, this whole thing is, I imagine, going to have delayed medical research, not to mention the kind of funding that was mm-hmm. obviously all rightly funneled towards finding vaccines and treatments for COVID that that means that other conditions maybe got neglected Mm -hmm. it's a really really fascinating story and it's one that's going to have ongoing implications for the medical industry Uh, there's a link to Grace's piece in the show notes and do let us know what you think as well if you're listening are you in an industry that maybe people haven't thought about that's maybe being affected by the war in Ukraine as well let us know podcast at wired.co.uk Our second story this week is about Conti, one of the world's most notorious ransomware gangs. A few weeks ago, Matt Burgess talked about the inner workings of the ransomware group TrickBot. This was based on obtaining a few hundred of the gang's internal chat messages. This time, Matt's been reading 60,000 messages from the Conti group. What happened, Matt, apart from you going very slightly insane by uh, spending a week diving through this stuff? Yeah, I've been far too much detail inside of these messages and feel like uh, a large sense of sort of deja vu at some point. But the Conti ransomware group has been one of the biggest in the world. It's been, in fact, it was the the highest uh, grossing, if that's the right word, uh, ransomware group last year when it extorted 180 million US dollars from companies uh, around the world by using its ransomware attacks. Um, And hours after Russian troops crossed into Ukraine on February 24th, Um, Conti offered its full support to the Russian government in a post on its website. It threatened to hack the critical infrastructure belonging to anybody who dared to launch cyber attacks against Russia or its own infrastructure. And while many of Conti's members live in Russia, the group itself 
has a more of an international scope. It has members that live in Ukraine and Belarus and elsewhere. And the war has divided the sort of internal mechanisms of this group. Privately, some of the group uh, went against the sort of statement that the leaders put out saying they, they backed Russia. Um, the leaders actually tried to backtrack on that statement. But at the same time, um, they weren't necessarily um, prepared for a Ukrainian cybersecurity researcher who uh, had infiltrated the group. They had been sitting with inside the group watching of what had been happening uh, and had access to their files and internal chat systems. Um, and when this message of support for the Russian government was posted, um, the Ukrainian researcher who has stayed um, anonymous for security reasons, um, they decided to rip Conti wide open and they published thousands of files and chat messages all belonging to Conti to the open web. The Ukrainian researcher gets, I guess, annoyed at the stance that Conti has taken, uh, the pro-Putin stance, and decides to it, it kind of vindictively leak all these messages and these, these 60,000 messages that you've been going through over the last couple of weeks. So what do they tell us? What, what new information do they reveal about the operations of this ransomware gang Conti? So there's a huge amount of stuff in there, obviously, because this is uh, 60,000 messages. They were spanning over the course of around two years. So for roughly from the start of 2020, right up until the day before they were leaked on February 27th. Um, so there is a huge amount of time in there. There's stuff across the pandemic and also uh, sort of wider political and, and other events that are happening. But they really give us sort of like a glimpse into the daily life of this criminal gang and what it's like for people to work there. And really one of the biggest takeaways is how much like a normal legitimate business this group operates so um the chats show its structure there's around sort of 100 members in the group although this fluctuates at various times um and the conti ransomware gang runs uh with various different departments from a hr uh, and administrators to coders and researchers all different people with different responsibilities across the group um conti has policies on how its hackers should process their code when they're uploading it to github and other places and they sort of share best practices to keep the group's members hidden from law enforcement there's various tools and files that they use um, just to be able to sort of like keep their identities hidden there's a ceo like figure called stern um, and that is actually the same person who led, leads the tip trick bot group which we spoke about previously these groups are in some ways quite interchangeable and there's many of the same actors and personalities or characters across both of them um, and stern is quite often checking for uh, what people are doing and sort of like their 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 work really. Really. So one message that Stern sent to about 50 people individually in private DMs was, hello, how are you doing? Write the results and successes or failures of your work. Um, and there are sort of like other mid-level managers across the group as well. They get paid twice a month. Uh, coders and sort of like rank and file members of the group get around sort of 1500 to 2000 US dollars. Whereas those who are um, negotiating ransoms and sort of the payments that companies will make to get access to their data again, they are normally take a bit of a cut of the the deals that they negotiate which is essentially an incentive to to do better and the group is constantly recruiting because people are leaving all the time whether it's because they realize the type of work they're doing fall out with other members or really just sort of like move on to working for another group or just doing something different entirely do you think people are going into this thinking it's like a legitimate like one of the things in the story was that you kind of said that they recruit using kind of traditional methods like you know job ads on normal recruitment boards do you think people are going into this thinking it's like a legitimate job and then realizing only halfway through that it 
actually what they're doing is probably illegal and that's when they're leaving. There's a little bit of that sort of sense, but I don't think, I think they very quickly cotton on to what they're doing. So while um, they may be responding to or being contacted by proactively because they have access to their CVs or something like that, um, I think that they um, are largely sort of aware very quickly that they are doing work that is sort of a ransomware and criminal related but i don't think that necessarily there is um within all members there's not that we've seen some details before where people have turned down work or said they're not being paid enough for this type of thing um and then once they realize it's sort of like black hat hacking uh criminal related hacking they just scarper really yeah one of the things that I, i kind of was struck by reading your story is that i guess we've been conditioned by the media to think of like you know illegal hackers as being like you know there's like an archetype right you know it kind of quite seedy kind of quite like removed from society but one of the things that's in your story that we'll put a link to in the show notes was that the sort of banality of it all like apart from the fact that this is a network essentially of international criminals it's not the conversations they're having are not dissimilar to the conversations that you and I might have over slack right yeah and that was one of the things that I really struck me as I was doing this as well so um, while I was reading a bunch of these files I was also on Slack and chatting to people uh, and stuff like that so it was also like I could just see in parallel people uh, having sort of like day-to-day conversations about what they were doing at work what they were um, what was going on in their lives talking about some of them were talking about their partners and uh, things like that and actually sort of like it was just really the same and I guess on one sense we're all we're all human and go through the same sort of emotions and things like that um, but some of the things that they were talking about were being offline for because they had internet problems there were messages being like oh he went to get a haircut he's not around at the moment uh, and can't work there's people sort of like complaining about their work hours um, some of them were talking about uh, being burnt out if they were working too much as well which is something that many people have obviously had during the last couple of years particularly working remotely and it's and while all of that is remarkably normal it does sort of hide this grim underbelly of what's happening here it is a criminal gang and it's and it is one that is super organized and it's organized and optimized for profit really they are doing this and have got this structure in place because they can make a lot of money and they know that they can make a lot of money from being able to do this and the gang members do refer to their um to the ethics of their hacking and what they're doing really but you don't get a sense that it is um the thing that they're most concerned about a lot of the time um so there are instances where they've talked about hacking hospitals and uh, trying to um, essentially that's not in there. They don't have like a code of conduct, but they've said that they won't attack hospitals um, because of the various like ramifications and the bad reputation that comes with that. Um, but they do actually do that on occasion. Um, so one of the things that sort of just sort of like hints at how the group know and understand what they're doing is when some of them were talking about holiday so one of the junior-ish members I think uh, was warned that they shouldn't go on holiday because they there was a chance of them getting arrested and they talk about being followed by law enforcement there's some chats in there where they're saying uh, one of the members was messaging the boss saying that there was a car that was in the a parking lot that had two bodies sat in it that seemed to be following them around and being a bit paranoid so they are very aware that the, what they're doing is criminal and they shouldn't be doing it but um just the sense that you get isn't the it isn't the sort of like biggest concern day to day about what they're doing they're more interested in just getting the job done in some ways it's really really fascinating like the their preoccupations are the same as anyone's preoccupation and i guess it's really fascinating that the structure that works for like a lot of like you know legal businesses like you know any any business really any medium-sized business also works for this company with like a ceo and hr managers and middle managers and like 
regular checkups and all this kind of stuff is so so fascinating but that's not all like you've got another story based on this leak which is looking at the group slightly wild and maybe this is where it kind of deviates from a normal company its ambitions to grow and expand even further so they've been working on two projects over the last um, year and a half really so one of these is a social network and the other one is a cryptocurrency platform and the details are relatively scant but um, there is enough sort of references and mentions of paying designers and people to show that they were relatively serious about this and it wasn't just idle chatter about let's build something new Um, and the social network there were mock-ups of um, this uh, potential platform which we've not ever seen but it contained news feeds and sort of the people behind it were saying that they wanted a million people to be signed up to this and they would be able to use it as a commercial platform um, to be able to sort of like make money or transfer money and organize themselves in some sense. But they also said that there'll be journalists on this platform, there'll be coders, there'll be programmers, people will be able to get the latest news about sort of hacking and things like that, uh, be able to message each other. The, um, the mock-ups also showed sort of like um, profiles that everybody would have and access to all the amount of Bitcoins that they were holding when they were logged into a profile and really just sort of like trying to build out this system of communications and um, other ways of the group being able to make money. But the other project that they were doing around cryptocurrency is potentially the one that um, if you're going to look at both of these projects is the one that is a little bit more uh, makes a bit more sense really Um, so this crypto project that they were talking about Stern the CEO of the group uh, talked about making a cryptocurrency platform for most of the last year they started in sort of like June July 2021 and they're still talking about it in February 2022 and it all started with a message saying is there anyone among us who considers himself a guru of blockchain and trends Um, and they then went on to cite um, um, the Ethereum code li- library in Ethereum and various other uh, blockchain and cryptocurrency trading platforms. They also mention NFTs and decentralized finance and uh, various decentralized marketplaces as well. And these discussions have lasted a very long time. So it's something that they've put forth and effort into trying to build. I actually take back what I said about them. this being a deviation from what a normal company would do. This is exactly what a, a medium-sized legal startup of, of, of this ilk would probably do, judging by my inbox. Launch a cryptocurrency project, launch a social network. It's all very, very banal, isn't it? Like, what, Why would a group like this that's clearly making hundreds of millions of dollars a year go to the trouble of building a crypto platform itself? So I think that... The excerpts that I spoke to really said that this is about the movement of money and it ties into the ransomware business as well. So uh, when a company is hit by ransomware and chooses to pay uh, the ransom that is uh, that they've been offered um, and generally the advice is not to do this but lots of companies do do it all the time and they don't make it public because they don't want other people to know about it and we don't really uh understand the full scale of companies that have been hit by ransomware and have paid ransoms there's actually in these chat files there's a lot of uh, company names that they're talking about that they say they've hit with ransomware and you look these companies up and there's nothing that's been publicly declared about this but when the payments are made they are all made in crypto and crypto isn't totally anonymous Um, and police and law enforcement over recent years are getting better at tracking criminals through and the movement of money uh, in cryptocurrency by criminals through various different platforms when they move it from one exchange to another exchange there's sort of a trail trace that's being led and if it's tried to cash out there are ways that they can essentially track down who is handling this money if there is the uh, the will of law enforcement and also the expertise to do so but if conti control uh, the way that the money is moved and they're able to get it out of systems easier then essentially they're in charge of 
the payments and they can take control of what happens through this um, ultimately it means there's less chance of them getting caught because they're in charge of the finances they can set up systems where if they did even create their own cryptocurrency they could set up a system where they're paid via that cryptocurrency so it just comes straight to them and really it's just giving them a bit more control over the overall process which decreases the chances of them being caught in some ways yeah i guess it just becomes this black box that's really really hard for law enforcement or whoever to kind of peer into but i mean that's kind of the opposite of what's just happened right there's been this huge huge leak sixty thousand messages i'm assuming there must be like even although like you said they're all anonymous their usernames are anonymous i'm assuming there's a lot of potentially identifying information in these messages that could be used by law enforcement to figure out who these people are and, and bring them to justice if there is indeed an appetite to bring them to justice um within the countries that they operate in so what happens next like what happens now this big leak has happened has it like stored the group's operations it's been like what a couple of weeks since this information came out what's going to happen next yeah so it sort of uh, leans into what you were just saying there about identities and sort of personal information and that side of things um but conti hasn't since this data was published it hasn't actually um stopped operating it's still been hacking uh, companies and it's still been posting sort of like new updates of the companies that it's hacked onto its website and their data that they've stolen from them um so it hasn't put them off in this way um it has it did destroy them originally there was talk of um the sort of leaks and some of this stuff in their very like the final sort of chats they were they were referencing some of this data um and sort of like they're they're very well aware of it and they've moved to like change some of their systems a little bit from what we can tell um but they are still very much working um but alongside this there has been um people trying to identify members of the group so there are various bitcoin addresses in there there are various email addresses there are bits of personal information some of the chats that i was looking at one of the hackers was saying to another one uh, i bet you can't work out who i am within three three tries uh, and literally one message later they sent back this person's name because the person had left it in the code that they were writing um, and you look up their email address and you can find their github page and their picture and all of this sort of thing um, is there so that will be useful to law enforcement in some ways there's probably um, considering that uh, a ukrainian researcher was already infiltrated this group uh, there may be other people that have had access to this type of data over the past or been able to do something similar we don't know but i don't think that's beyond sort of speculation to say that law enforcement might already know about this because there have been some uh, in the u.s there have been some uh, indictments against various members of this group and there have been chat logs referenced in the past and as I say i've reported on some in the past as well so um that's not that maybe maybe some this isn't that new to law enforcement but we'll wait and see on that front but i think it really just shows that this the scale of this leak is completely unprecedented and you wouldn't really get this insight into a ransomware gang unless you worked in a law enforcement agency or a cybersecurity company mm. or something like that and having this data out there and this information gives people an idea of what these groups are capable of and how best to sort of protect yourself against them so that's probably hopefully going to be one of the longer lasting things that comes from this just a greater awareness and ability to protect businesses it's a really really fascinating story fascinating two stories actually we're going to put <clears throat> links to both of matt's stories in the show notes and keep an eye on wired.com because there's one more story coming up on the conti group as well we've got time for some feedback matt so we had an email from Kajal writing from the Netherlands. They said that they love the podcast and it's part of their morning routine, which is always nice to hear. They do say that since we have been recording back in together in the studio, which studio <laughs> it's a cupboard. It's not studio is stretching it a little bit, but that's my words. Uh, they said um, that essentially 
they've noticed there has been a bit of a quieting in the volume of the podcast, which is something that we have noticed as well. And hopefully this podcast is going to be a little bit louder uh, based on sort of like some tweaks we've made to the system that we're using. And they also mentioned the browser coverage uh, when we were talking about Firefox. They say they use Firefox by default on all their, their devices. And they say that it's they find it very good and it's one of the mankind's only hope against the Google cyber complex um, and they think it's technically great and it loses out because it's not Google and yeah that story is something that we talked about in quite a bit of detail and there's so many different reasons for the decline of Firefox but generally people do think it is very good and usable as a browser and technically good but they may have left for Chrome for other reasons. The Google cyber complex sounds like you know the, the dystopian like people farm that we might end up living in in 50 <laughs> years like Matrix style. Uh, thank you for writing in. If anyone has got any feedback or any thoughts on anything we talked about in this week's episode or any episodes in the last few weeks or months or years even, do let us know, podcast at wired.co.uk. That's it from us. We'll be back next week. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye.